Father, we come to you and we're so very thankful and we're so very just open and receptive to your love, God, because you, you are not a, a mean and vindictive God that is up in heaven requiring uh, us to keep rules in order to be accepted by you. But God, you sent your son so that we could look to you in faith and receive all the righteousness and blessings that we could ever hold is just in your son. All of it is in your son. And we accept that by faith. We look at what Jesus did on the cross and we take it by faith. We appropriate it into our own lives, into our own hearts. And Lord, it brings such freedom, Lord, because we don't have to earn our way. We can just be who we are. We are free to be sinners. We're free to be failures. We're free. And God, we know that you won't leave us there, and we know that we are not stuck there. But God, you, you accept us where we're at right now. And you promise to change us and make us into the man of God or the woman of God that you have called us to be. God, we are free to just enjoy your presence and your spirit. God, that kind of freedom, that kind of acceptance does not come cheap. Jesus, it cost you your whole life. And you offered that so freely to us. And God, we accept it just now by faith. We love what you did for us on the cross and we love each other because of what you have done for us. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray it would speak powerfully into our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we get to Genesis chapter 10, and of course, Genesis has been a book of beginnings. It is showing us how everything got started. It's given the foundation of so many different things. And in chapter 10, we get to what is commonly called the Table of Nations. And this is the foundation, this is the beginning of how all the anthropology started in the world. All the different nations, all the different people groups, and how they spread out by families is what we're getting into today. The sons of Noah, who got off the boat, the ark, which we saw landed last week, were Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And it's very important to know who they are. Them and their wives all got off the boat and... His descendants uh, we make up 70 different family names that we're given here in this chapter. So we're not going to read the entire chapter. I will let you go do that, and you should stand in front of a mirror, and you should look how funny you look when you try to pronounce these names, because that's what I would be if I was doing it right now. But I'm going to let you guys go ahead and do that yourselves. We're going to highlight a couple things, and I'm going to give you kind of a big picture so that you can explore that in your own time. I, po I posted something up on our Facebook page of uh, the scientific uh, reasons why we know that this is true and how the families all got dispersed and stuff like that. So if you really want to get into it, you can look at that. But suffice it to say, we have Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham had a whole bunch of kids, and his kids liked to spread out. The, uh, the descendants of Ham would be all the people of Africa, all the people in India, the islands of the Indonesian islands, all the people of China and Japan and Korea, all the peoples of Siberia, and then going off into the Native Americans, Aztec, Incans, all those people were all descendants of Ham. And we see back in the prophecy at the end of the last chapter that uh, Moses, or no, excuse me, Noah, said that Ham would like to spread out. He liked his elbow room. And so they, his family is really spread out. Japheth is where most of us in here come from, if, is from the uh, Indo-European uh, nationality. So the, the 
uh, Britons and, and Spain and France and Germany, uh, all those, and, and including Russia, uh, the, the, Easter, the western part of Russia, those all came from the descendants of Japheth. And so you can explore that as you get into it. I, I, my family specifically comes from Japheth and then Gomer. They were from, uh, they settled up in Germany, and that's the ancient name for Germany. So it's pretty interesting to, to get into that if you really love uh, finding the anthropology of where people come from. Uh, then you get the third group of people, which is Shem. Shem uh, are the Semitic. Shem, it got, it's another way to say a Sem or Semitic people. These would be the Jews and the Arabs for the most part. The people who stayed right there in where we're going to find the Tower of Babel built, uh, right where Noah was, right where everything was at the beginning. They just stayed right there. And so um, that's how the, these families split up. You know? But all of us are humans. All of us have one blood. All of us came from Noah and his sons. And science is very clear that they, they say it goes back to one family. It goes back to two people. And that would be Noah. And, and uh, so you wonder and you think to yourself, well, how do we get so many different looking people? How can, how can you have the, the tall people and the black people in Africa and the Asian people? And why are, they, why are such wild differences in the way that people look? Because um, they're not different races. We're all the human race. We all have one blood. And, uh, and the, the truth about that is the difference between macroevolution and microevolution. You see, there will be adaptations as, as uh, people gather together and as they, only, as they lived in one kind of people group, they would develop the stronger traits and those str stronger traits would survive. So um, that's called microevolution. We see it, it's verifiable, it happens, it's very clear. It's awesome, it's called adaptation. All animals do it, it's very awesome. God designed us to be able to adapt. But macroevolution is not that. Macroevolution would be to say a human could turn into a frog or an alien or a dinosaur or any of these things could just turn into the, another species and that has never been observed, has never been recorded and fossil evidence doesn't lead us to that conclusion either, which is pretty awesome if you wanna get in and study that. Again, we're not gonna take a lot of time on that. So all these families were developing and kind of spreading out and they knew God, they knew the story of the flood. I heard on the radio yesterday that there's over 200 cultures around the world that have a flood story. And over 90% of them, one family gets saved, and the flood is a result of the wrath of God. Very interesting. And there's a whole lot more, um, again, in the anthropology and the study of these, uh, study, uh, of these um, cultural stories that we could get into. And in 60, I think it was 68% of them, it had a boat that saved the family. And you just, how could all these cultures have the same idea of what happened? And, and so all these people, they all knew Noah. He was their great-grandpa. He lived for another 400 years after the flood. Well, actually, 348 years after the flood. Shem, his son, lived 500 years after the flood, long enough to personally know and speak to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? So, but, it, but soon... As, as all these people are growing, there came a man who had different plans. I'm sure Shem was a great guy. I'm sure uh, all Noah's sons knew the Lord. I'm sure that they, were, they, they knew that God had saved them and they wanted to serve the Lord. But they started having kids, and there came a guy named Nimrod. He is the second man we've seen so far in the Bible 
that leads a total rebellious life against God. The first we saw was Cain, right? And we saw what happened with his family and his descendants, how they tried so hard to find their identity in anything but God. Well, Nimrod, he's, he's similar, but he's a little different in this. Nimrod is going to do anything he can do to actually fight with God or oppose God. He's not going to ignore that God's not there. He doesn't want to just be an atheist. He's like, no, I am not an atheist. I am an enemy of God. I am an enemy of God. So we, we're going to go ahead and read a little bit of this. We get to verse, uh, we'll, we'll start in verse 8 in chapter 10. It says, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalneh, and the land, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. You guys remember that city? Certain prophet uh, had a whale of a time there. Boom. All right. Rehobah, Ur, Kala, and risen uh, between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. So it says here that Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. We studied mighty ones on the earth before. We've seen some mighty ones on the earth before, and they were those Nephilim. They were those giants that happened when the dark spiritual beings had relations with women and the result was these famous giants before the flood. And it was a big reason why God had to send the flood because of the corrupting of the human race. But here, Nimrod, he's, he's rising to power. He's becoming strong and he's opinionated. He's totally evil. He hated God. He becomes a dictator. He starts establishing a kingdom, but it says here he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that's a veiled way of saying he wasn't a hunter of animals. I mean, he might have been good at hunting dragons and dinosaurs and lions and stuff, but what he really was is that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord or against the Lord, which means he was a hunter of souls. He wanted people's souls. God wants souls to be saved, Nimrod wanted to have those souls serve him. He wanted their worship. He wanted their attention. And so he founded these civilizations. He founded these cities and these empires that are going to have one goal, the rebellion against God. He is a picture we are going to see of Antichrist. He was an Antichrist, one who stood against God in everything. In 1 John, it gives us uh, some clarity in verse, 1 John 2.18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Nimrod is the founder of this line of Antichrists that will span the millennia of human history. Men who have no greater passion than to do what God hates and to get as many people to follow them and go with them as possible. Cain was before Nimrod. Pharaoh, we'll see. Haman, Antiochus Epiphanes, Diocletian, Hitler, Nero, Titus, Mussolini. The list goes on and on of men who developed whole kingdoms with one purpose, to destroy God, the memory of God, and God's people. 
It was, it's very real. And that's why there are Nimrods everywhere. <laughs> all hunting souls, all refusing to have God rule over them, all planning ways to do evil, all making war with God and any who love him, every single one of them building their own towers where they believe they will be safe from the judgment and wrath of God. We're going to get into that in just a few minutes. He builds a kingdom called Babylon. The beginning, it says, of his kingdom was called Babel. And he has Eric, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So Nimrod, he conquered a huge part of the known world. He was the dictator of it. He, he wanted control of the people, and, and he founded this whole civilization based on ha- hating God, and Babel was its name. It's going to become Babylon, or we're going to start to know it as the name Babylon. And a tower is going to be built here very soon, which is going to be the culmination of Nimrod's influence on this kingdom. Will be the tower in the next chapter. We're going to get there today. So this guy, Nimrod, was probably the most influential man in the world until Jesus came. So for thousands of years, he's certainly the most interesting man in the world. He doesn't always found entire civilizations, but when he does, they're always in complete rebellion against God and heaven. So check this out. We got to learn a little bit about this guy, Nimrod, because he's way, this is way bigger than just these few verses in the Bible. The Bible tells us who he is, but check this out. He married a woman named Semiramis. And if you studied ancient history, these names will start to click. You'll start to put this together. She also goes by the title of the Queen of Heaven. She's talked about two times in the book of Jeremiah. She claimed, here's the interesting story, okay? Nimrod, he's out founding all these cities and doing his whole kingdom thing, dictator thing. She's at home, chilling, and she claimed that she was impregnated miraculously. She claimed there was no man involved while Nimrod was out on a long trip. We've heard that before. And she claimed that this happened in late March. And it was celebrated, this whole miraculous impregnation was celebrated by the whole Babylonian culture in a feast called Ishtar. They celebrated by painting eggs and by giving bunnies to each other because of what bunnies do. So she was like extra fertile, I guess they were celebrating. Uh, Anyway, the son that she would have from this miraculous birth was named Tammuz. He was born on December 25th. Nine months after the end of March is December 25th. So you get Tammuz. Ezekiel chapter 8 mentions Tammuz and he says, why are my people weeping for Tammuz? So this is something, this legend, this story is going to endure for generations. And we're going to see in just a minute just how far reaching it gets. How did they celebrate Tammuz's birthday? Well, in Jeremiah chapter 10, it says this. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. 
for one cuts down a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. What? I didn't know it talked about Christmas trees in the Bible. Absolutely. That's how they celebrated Tammuz's birthday. Why was it a green tree? Well, for life, of course, because of Tammuz, you know, and, and this story about Tammuz. So as Tammuz was growing up, he was out in the forest doing some hunting or something, and a wild boar came up to him and killed him. Ah, but three days later, this virgin-born Tammuz rose from the dead is the story that they propagated. This is the story that they came up with, this Tammuz guy and his mom, Semiramis, and his dad, Nimrod. And so they got a green tree, and every green tree is how they would celebrate Tammuz's birthday because evergreens always stay green, symbolizes the resurrection. So this is the foundations of what was called the Mystery Babylon Religion the mystery Babylon religion. And this story goes on through all kinds of cultures because we're going to see they build a tower, God confuses their languages, so all these cultures split up based on languages, okay? And it continues, but they just change the name. You go down to Egypt, and, and the same two guys of Nimrod and Semiramis, they are Osiris and Isis. You go out to... Um, uh, in, the, in the area there of, of uh, Mesopotamia, it was known as Astaroth and Baal. And you hear about them quite a bit in the Bible. Up in the Greece and up where J, uh, Japheth settled, it was known as Cupid and Venus. Over in China, Xingmu. And every single culture, most of them anyway, they, they take this story and, and they propagate it as their own. Why did it have such power? And we know that none of this is true, right? This is just a legend. It's all the same story, but it's a legend. But it sounds an awful lot like what? Like what we believe about Jesus, right? It sounds an awful lot about it, a lot like it. But every single one of these cultures has an innate rebellion against God. So it's not the same. It's a counterfeit. Satan has inspired this story. And Satan started his work. He knows the scriptures, and so he knew that Jesus would come, and he would come by a virgin birth, and all these different things. And so he inspired a counterfeit, a believable counterfeit, but a counterfeit itself. Whenever you get a, a counterfeit, it's because there's a reality. John Corson puts it this way, you never see a counterfeit $17 bill. Why? Because no one would believe it, right? So what about Christmas trees? What about Sunday? You know, Sunday is just the day where they worship the sun. So what about Sunday? What about Christmas trees? What about all that? You know, most likely Jesus was not born on December 25th. He was born during autumn, probably during the Feast of Tabernacles, because that's what God was doing. He was tabernacling or dwelling among us. And so Jesus was probably born about that time. But this whole Christmas celebration was called Saturnalia. And it was a part of the whole Roman Empire, along with these other empires as well, these other cultures. But when Constantine became a Christian in 313 AD, he took this whole Saturnalia celebration and he Christianized it. 
He just changed the name. He, he tried to convert the whole empire. He had this huge job. He thought it was his mission from God to make everyone in the whole Roman Empire Christians. And so his idea was to take the Saturnalia and just make Jesus part of it. Just make it all about Jesus. Just point people to Jesus. He was trying to convert that whole empire, but they still wanted their parties. They still wanted their celebrations and their traditions that go all the way back to this guy, Nimrod. So the question is, should we celebrate Christmas and Easter and worship on Sunday, knowing that it does have pagan roots? There's no debate that it has pagan roots. So should we celebrate them? Maybe you drove by my house and you peeked in my windows and saw that I have a Christmas tree. Two of them. What is the deal? What are we doing? Yes, I do. And, and honestly, it is a debate. It is deba- it's rooted in paganism, paganism, no doubt. But I believe it can be redeemed, that the meaning of Christmas, if we keep our eyes on Jesus, it can be redeemed. And I do have a tree because of Jesus. And for me, it's really important to watch Jesus and see what he did. In the book of John, it says that Jesus journeyed to Jerusalem at one point for the Festival of Lights or the Feast of Dedication. And at that festival, that festival was not a biblical festival. It's not something that's in the Bible. We know it today as Hanukkah, right? Where they light the seven candles on the menorah to celebrate what happened back then. We're not going to go into it, but basically it was not a biblical thing. It wasn't one of God's ordained feasts, but they celebrated it. And guess what? Jesus goes and Jesus celebrates it. Furthermore, he doesn't just celebrate with the people, but he takes the opportunity to explain to them that I, hey guys, guess what? I am the light of the world. You guys are all celebrating light. Guess what? I am the light of the world. So he took the opportunity using a secular event to just be creative and shift people's eyes towards their savior. And I I look at Christmas the same way. We have an evergreen tree. We can remember the new life that was given through Jesus. You have your lights, you can think about the light of the world. You have your holly and the berries, could think of the crown of thorns, maybe in the blood that flowed from his, his suffering. Santa, he was a real guy. You know, there's more churches in the world named after St. Nicholas than any other, any other saint. It's pretty cool. Uh, but, you know, he was a great guy. You can talk about him and leading people to the Lord and giving gifts to people. Obviously, all these things we can use to point people towards Jesus. So my point in this message is not to tell you not to have a Christmas tree. You can have a Christmas tree or not. And if you're worshiping Tammuz or Samaramis, stop it. <laughs> don't. But I honestly don't think anyone in here is. Now, maybe if you're not loving or you just care about getting presents, maybe that you have that heart of worshiping Samaras and Tammuz, but I don't think you guys are ever thinking about Tammuz, are you? Anyone? Okay, no. All right. Well, let's go now to chapter 11 of Genesis. And let's see what happens. Now that we've established who Nimrod is, we're going to find out some more, but let's see what happens. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. 
And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what, the, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So God had told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to scatter over the earth, but they wanted to unite. Nimrod forced them to unite. What was God doing here? We'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. But what they did is they built a huge, probably ziggurat. And we see the evidence of ziggurats being built all over the world with similar designs. None of them as big as this, but with similar designs. They wanted to use that same idea. They had that memory from this, this tower. And so they built it in the Mayas, the Incas, in China, in the pyramids, every, all the cultures around the world, they had this ziggurat thing. And what were they doing? Well, there's some ideas saying they wanted to get their direction and their wisdom from the stars. They wanted to build these observatories where they could observe the stars. And that's how, why some of the ziggurats were built. We know that. It's possible that they had crystals being used to communicate over long distances. The technology that they had was unbelievable. They had amazing ability uh, to use technology back then. They were very smart people. But really what the heart of the issue is, and the Bible tells us this, is that they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. It's all about me. It's all about what I can do. It's the very picture of pride, and that shows to us and reveals to us the source of this deception, obviously, is from the father of pride, Satan. He was kicked out of heaven for this exact same thing, for wanting to make a name for himself. You can look in Isaiah to see that. Kicked out of heaven. And the Lord, it says, he came down to observe this. And what he observed is that nothing would be impossible because of their imaginations, that their imaginations were totally evil. We don't need to spend time developing our imaginations. We don't need to spend time thinking about the things that just pop into our mind. God says our minds got corrupted a long time ago. And if we just spend all our time on our imaginations and just thinking about all that we can think about, we're going to drift towards evil. No, the Bible actually gives us a different plan. It says in Romans 12, 2, that we need to renew our minds, that we need to reform our minds. And how does that happen? By spending time in the Word, by reading our Bibles, and by talking with the Lord about that. It will renew our minds. So the Lord, he says, man, nothing's going to be possible because their imaginations are just wild and crazy, and they speak one language. They speak one language. So they can all work together, and they say, hey, I'm imagining this, and I'm imagining that. And so it becomes this joint venture, and everyone in the world could be combined under it, just like we speak one language again today in this world. 
the language we speak is computers, math, the internet. So God comes down to undo this antichrist kingdom. It was a one world kingdom. It was a rebellious kingdom. Just like Jesus will come back and undo the great antichrist's kingdom and his one world government that is coming in our world. Unless you be afraid and, and think ahead to all these events that are prophesied in the Bible with fear, just know that we're already going to be in heaven. That the Bible says that we are going to be returning with him, riding on horses of our own, flying out of the heavens, and we're going to help him establish this kingdom. So it's not scary for us. It is scary for all the Nimrods, though. And for the ultimate Nimrod, the ultimate Antichrist. But this guy, this Nimrod, this whole Babel, the Tower of Babel, this was a real place that really existed. This was a real guy. It's well-known tale, even and is common in Sumerian literature, of a man who fits this description. It's in addition to the Sumerians, the Babylonians wrote about him, the Assyrians likewise, and the Hittites. Even in Israel, tablets have been found with his name on it, Nimrod. He was obviously the most popular hero in the ancient Near East. But I want to read to you guys Josephus. Josephus is the first century historian, the Jewish historian, who wrote about a lot of things in history. And this is what he has to say about Nimrod. He says, now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe to God as if it were through his means that they were happy but to believe it was their own courage which produced happiness. He also gradually changed the government into a tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his own power. He also said he would be revenged on God if, uh, if he should have a mind to bring, uh, to drown, excuse me, the world again for that he would build a tower too, high enough for the waters to not be able to reach the top, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Nimrod was angry. Josephus says he was mad at God for flooding the world, and he was scared that God would flood the world again. And instead of just having a relationship with God and trusting God and loving God, he said, I am going to do everything I can do to stand against that God. So the purpose, he says, of the tower was to survive another flood if God sent it. In other words, I would rather do all of my wickedness than simply trust that you love me and that the promise you made to never flood the world again is true. I want to do everything I want to do other than just trust your promise, your promises. Nimrod and the culture he founded want nothing more than revenge on God for telling them what to do, for wanting people to serve him. They're, they're mad. God, why should we have to serve you? The whole idea of Babylon and the whole heart behind it is this. God will not rule over us. God will not rule over us. And that idea exists today. Not in a secular city that we can see with walls, 
but in the whole world and that heart of we will not have God rule over us. In Revelation 17 and 18, we see two whole chapters given to the destruction of this idea. We will not have God rule over us. It's even called Babylon. So when we think of Babylon, that's what we got to remember. That's the idea we will not have God rule over us. Both the religious system and the economic system, they're both expressions of the same heart of Nimrod today. So Babylon, we will not have it. It was really, maybe you saw this in the news this week, but Stephen Fry is this actor from England. He's a staunch atheist, and he, um, he left a television host stunned when he explained what he would say if he was confronted by God. The actor and author made a series of impassioned comments during an interview with Gary Byrne for the show called The Meaning of Life. The weekly show features discussions about the purposes of life and religion and happiness after death. And the clip released ahead of Sunday screening, which is today, it's going to be on today, uh, saw uh, Fry discussing his views on God from his perspective as an atheist. Suppose it's all true and you walk up to the pearly gates and you're confronted by God, asked Byrne. What will Stephen Fry say to him? her or it? Great question. The 57-year-old replied, I'd say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery and it's not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that's so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. Burns' second question. And do you think you're going to get in like that? Only, and this question only seemed to fuel his fervor. But I wouldn't want to, Fry insisted. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They are wrong. Now, if I died and it was Pluto and Hades and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more, tuck, more to truck with it because the Greeks didn't pretend to not be human in their appetites, in their capriciousness, and in their unreasonableness. They didn't pretend themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-benevolent because the God that created this universe, if it was created by a God, is clearly quite, quite clearly a maniac utterly maniac and totally selfish. That's his opinion. That's what he says. And he makes this argument. And the heart behind that argument is Babylon, or I will not have God rule over me. And it's so sad as we realize that, isn't it? Or as we read that, as we hear that, the saddest thing is that God isn't anything that he accuses him of. And the proof that he just needs to look at is the cross. If he would just open his eyes and look at the cross and see that God doesn't just leave a cursed world alone, that he doesn't just ignore the pain and suffering that was brought to us when we sinned, that was our consequences. No, he doesn't. He comes and takes the curse for us on the cross and opens up a way out. He does demonstrate love. No, he is blind to it. He says, we didn't deserve this. Really, Stephen Fry, we don't deserve it. Why do we get to pick the consequences of our sin? And that's exactly what Nimrod doesn't get either. Nimrod, 
He flooded the world as a consequence of the sin. Everyone dies as a consequence of sin. We don't get to pick our own consequences. If you have children, they would love to pick their own consequences, right? Here, ice cream if you kick me. Brownies if you misbehave. None of that works. No, the authority chooses the consequences. But the authority, in this case, is not without mercy. It's not without grace. It's not without love. It is open to absolutely anyone who would just repent and say, I'm sorry. I will be with you, God. I will walk with you. And Nimrod says, no, God is a jerk. And we're not going to follow him. He must be crazy. That's how Nimrod acted. Now, this is when it gets real crazy, okay? As you keep studying history, you'll get to the epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, you might have heard it. Gilgamesh is Nimrod. And it's this long story that really develops his character. He goes and takes whatever woman he wants, but there's some really interesting things. It says that Gilgamesh was always opposed to a guy named Yahweh. And he, was, he set up this tyranny, this government, to oppose Yahweh and to get people to forsake him. He believed God, or Yahweh, was a monster, half man and half beast that lived in the mountains of Lebanon. Or at least that's what he told his people. And as you continue with it, uh, you find out that Gilgamesh, he went over into Lebanon. He did vanquish this, this uh, God he called Yahweh, and he took his head. Therefore, he could come back to Uruk, or we read it as Eric in uh, Genesis chapter 10, and all his other cities, and he told his people not to worry about Yahweh anymore, that he was dead. He said, I killed him over Lebanon, the Lebanon mountains, so you just live however you would like. I will be your king, and I will take care of you. Wow. So what do we do with all this? I mean, Nimrod's heart, he is just at war with God. He wants you to think that God's not there, and if he is there, he's a jerk, so you can't follow him. And it just, it, it, it is infecting our whole culture. The media, the, the liberal, just everything. It's there. We are living in Babylon. I'm not saying it's America. It's this world. It's the whole system. What do we do with this? We turn to Psalm chapter 2 is what we do. We come to the word of God. And so open your Bibles to Psalm 2 and see what God would say. In Psalm chapter 2, he says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. Since the nations, nations rage, it's a deep-rooted anger that dwells inside them that Stephen Fry so clearly and eloquently explains. I hate God. I think he's wrong. Because I don't like what he chose as the consequences to sin, is what he should say. But that's really what's going on. The people, it says, plot a vain, a vain thing. Rebellion against the Lord is so worthless and vain. Do they really think they're going to win? Actually, they do. 
It will fail every time, though. It's like fighting against impossible odds. A vain thing. A medal was struck by Diocletian, an incredibly evil emperor in the Romans, uh, time, uh, Roman Empire. And it still remains this, this medal, bearing this inscription, the name of Christians being extinguished. And in Spain, two monumental pillars were raised on one which is written, I, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximum, Hercules, Caesarius, Augusti, that was his name, for having extended the Roman Empire in the East and in the West and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the Republic to ruin. Why does the world hate Christians? Why did he hate Christians? Why did he want to extinguish them? It says the kings and the rulers set themselves against, which means they proclaim, we are your enemy. We hate you. We will come up with plans and schemes to bring you down. We will build towers and guillotines. We will mock you and then we will kill you. They aren't worried about what's right and wrong, just what they have decided to do. In the psalm, it says the kings, they have set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Not because of its right, but it's what they've decided they say, let us break their bonds and cast away their cords. They honestly believe that God is holding them back, tying them down, not just God, but God's people too. That's why they hate you. They mock us. They hate us. The world today looks at Christianity as an old, rigid religion that needs to be cast off for more attractive religions of anti-supernatural science and liberal moral relativism. Or we could just call it Babylon. They can't put us down fast enough. They can't wait to express their passion against a belief system that actually has the audacity to claim they have the truth and the only way to heaven. Yet, verse 4, he who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. God will have the final say. He isn't afraid of their opposition. His first emotion is, are you kidding me? That's funny. You think you can come against me? You talking to me? I am not a monster in Lebanon. It says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh at them, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. This repetition of the same thing, which is frequent in scriptures, is a sign that the thing will be established. And that's what Joseph said. When things are repeated, it means God has decided that's how it's going to happen. It's a repetition to show us that there is no doubt to whoever's listening, that the thing which God says will happen. And what he says to these rebellious people will be filled with two things, it says, wrath and displeasure. And it will distress them. They are going to be bummed out in the most intense way ever. In the intense, most, the worst way. Verse 6, he says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, says the Lord, that the Lord has said to me, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. 
God says, you think you're a great king, Nimrod, Caesar, Hitler? You think you have a kingdom? Wait till they get a load of me. Wait till you see my son. He is the perfect representation of me. He comes forth from me. He is going to kick your butt. He says, verse 8, ask of me and I will give to you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. He's talking to Jesus. In other words, the father, God says, if Jesus wanted me to, I would just destroy you all in one second. I could just give you all to him right now. Every Antichrist leader could be overthrown in one second by a simple request from Jesus. But what is Jesus' request? What is Jesus asking his father at this moment? God says, you need to ask me, Jesus. So we should be asking him too for stuff, but that's a different point. Right now, what is Jesus asking? Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing yet. They don't know. The time will come. I will stand up as the king the moment I ask. The moment I finish preparing heaven for my bride, I'll say, Father, can I have the kingdoms now? Can I have what I bought on the cross now? Can I have my inheritance? And the Father will say, yes, here you go. Verse 9 says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is how it's going to happen. The storm is coming. The end is near. The hammer will fall. The enemies of Jesus will be broken to pieces, smashed to smithereens. This is God making a threat. But it's not an idle threat. It's a sure thing. Rebel against him and you're doomed. That's how it ends. You will be broken. He says, fall on the rock and be broken. In other words, it does take some humility to fall before Jesus and say, I need you. Or the rock will fall on you and it will grind you to powder, the Bible says. You don't want that. It's easy for God to destroy his foes. Behold Pharaoh sinking like lead in the Red Sea. Here is the end of one of the greatest plots ever formed against God's chosen. Or 30 Roman empires and governors who distinguished themselves by their zeal in persecuting the early Christians. Let me tell you how some of them were overthrown by God. Let me explain to you. One became speedily deranged after some atrocious cruelty. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started to fall out of his head. One was drowned, one was strangled, one died in miserable captivity. One fell and died in a manner that will, I can't even speak of, he says. One died in so, with such a loathsome disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled the room. Two committed suicide, a third attempted it, but had to call for help to finish the work. Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died from the most miserable and excruciating deaths. Several of them had untold complications of diseases, and eight were killed in battle after being taken prisoners. Among these was Julian the Apostate. In the days of his prosperity, he is said to have pointed a dagger at heaven, defying the Son of God 
whom he commonly called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, he saw that all was over with him. He gathered up all his clotted blood and threw it into the air, disclaiming, you have conquered, O Galilean. You have conquered me. God knows how to bring someone down. Verse 10 says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled just a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So God has some advice for these rebellious leaders, for these nimrods all over the world. He says, don't be stupid. Be wise. Be instructed. Don't think you already know. Go to school. Learn something new. Serve the Lord with fear. You are not a king to be served. You are to serve the king. Rejoice with trembling. It's good news. You can be saved. But you can also just as easy be thrown into hell. And then he says, kiss the son. The best advice, kiss the son. An intimate relationship with Jesus, the son, is the only thing that's going to save you. But you will be blessed if you trust him. You will have God's favor. You will experience life on the winning side, the good team. If you say, I'm not going to rebel against you. I'm not going to be like Stephen Fry. I'm not going to come against you with all these dumb accusations, saying that my own consequences are your fault. That's like a kid coming to their parent and saying, it's your fault I'm getting a spanking. No, it's not. We bear our own responsibilities, but... We're not going to do that. We're going to trust the Lord. We're going to say, I love you, God, and I trust you. No matter what it looks like, I'm going to trust you. Babel meant, Bab is gateway, El is heaven, Babel, gateway to God, gateway to heaven. Pretty cool, good name, but that's not what it means anymore. It says that the name changed its meaning. Babel means confusion. Confusion. They thought they were going to work their way to God, or they thought that their own efforts, their own kingdom was going to provide for them. And all it provided for them was confusion. By the end of their life, by the end, they're like, ah, I don't know if what's ah, just confusion. Trying to get to God based on our own works will always leave us tired, worn out, and confused. And the opposite of this is trusting his help, as the Psalm 2 told us at the end. Trust his grace. Trust his son. Just kiss the son. What if he's angry at me? Just kiss him and see what happens. Open up your word. Read. So is that how God leaves it? just confused and everyone's scattered around the world? No. We are going to start next week and we're going to start to develop and unfold God's amazing plan to not leave everyone in confusion, but to speak truth and bring salvation to the whole world through one man and his family named Abram. So we start with that next week. I hope to see you guys there. You're going to be blessed. But we need to all stand up. We need to sing a last song to 
go out of here in joy. God always leaves himself a witness. Shem was dying. Noah was dying. All the people were going crazy. The few believers may have wondered, what is going to happen now that, that we don't even have the tower? What is going to happen? God, we need a word from you. And God has just for the thing for them. And that's going to come next week with Abram. It's going to be a great time. We're going to spend many weeks looking at the life of Abraham. Abram, who becomes it. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we give you our hearts. Lord, our, our, um, our fear keeps us from wanting to be so open with you that we would kiss you. But that's the only thing the psalm says works. God, you have a, a desire for intimacy with us that doesn't care about our shame. Lord, you have taken away our shame when you died on the cross, and we are now free to just be who we are. And we know the things that we've done. We know how undeserving we are, but we don't know fully all that you did for us on the cross. But what we see gives us hope, and what your word says is that our shame is gone, our sin is gone, and if we accept you by faith, we have you. We have your love, we have your spirit and all that you promise. Just like you promised Noah with a rainbow that you loved him and that you were never going to deal with him in a flood way again. Father, you have promised us salvation to all who put their trust in you. We receive it. And if you today have never taken that step and said, I need Jesus and I believe what he did for me, I beg you to receive him today and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I repent of, of trying to build my own kingdom, trying to be a part of this huge kingdom that's in this world and what this world says I should be. And I, I repent of it all. And I turn to you. I draw close to you, God. By faith, I believe that you will allow me to kiss you. You will allow me to become so close to you that we touch. God, we need you. We pray for all the hearts in here that were discouraged, Lord, that you would encourage us. God, that we would push forward and we would not let this world deceive us, but let your word guide us in every step of the way. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for telling us about Nimrod. We thank you for getting us through all the challenges in our life. In your name we pray. Amen.